Welcome to Support for Survivors, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse. Our host is Shaughnessy Terrell, an attorney on Cohen and Malad's sexual abuse litigation team and a former deputy prosecuting attorney for the Marion County Prosecutor's Office Special Victims Unit. She will explore resources available to help survivors on their path to healing and how the community can come together to help these survivors and find ways to end sexual abuse. This is Support for Survivors. Hello, welcome to Support for Survivors. I'm your host, Shaughnessy Terrell. Joining us today is Indiana Senator Michael Kreider. Senator Kreider is the Majority Whip and has represented the 20th District in the Indiana State Senate since 2012. District 28 stretches from the east side of Indianapolis into Hancock and Shelby counties, encompassing quite a large area. Senator Kreider serves on a slew of committees and has been a leader in support of crime victims. I was fortunate enough to work closely with the Senator on some important legislation during my time with the Indiana Prosecuting Attorneys Council. Welcome, Senator Kreider. Thank you. It's good to be with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It seems like my life is all Zoom calls, and so uh, (laughs) I've been on one after another all afternoon, but, but it does help facilitate a lot of discussion so it's true still trying to get it done even though we can't really be together like we normally are so you gotta do what you gotta do right why don't you just take us through a little quickly um your background you're no stranger to the government you were a career dnr officer right 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 so i i started as a dnr officer at the ripe age of 21 and and had a really wonderful career which during that 30 years that i worked there was able to advance to the top position in the state, which made my job a little bit probably more political than it would for most field-level officers. When I was a mid-level supervisor, I would evaluate legislation that was filed during a, a legislative session that affected DNR, and, and then I began to meet with legislators and, and discuss ways that a bill might be improved to make it better for the agency. Uh, that got me in front of legislative committees testifying and really kind of spurred my interest in the legislative process. And so by the time I was hitting my 30th year, my senator at the time, Senator Gard, had approached me about the possibility of me running for her seat. She was wanting to retire. And so my wife wasn't really uh, cool with that idea, but I, I thought it would be an interesting new challenge for me. And because I like working on policy so much, I'm not, I still don't consider myself a politician, but I really like taking complex policy issues and trying to figure out a solution that, that helps serve the public in a better way. And, and this experience the last eight years has been really rewarding for me to, to see how pieces of legislation I've worked on have, in fact, helped victims realize some opportunity for justice. Yeah, and you certainly have. Um, you've authored multiple significant pieces of legislation that are aimed to help survivors of sexual assault. And, you know, even in preparing today for today, as I'm looking at these bills and then the subsequent laws that have that were enacted because of you, you can really see the evolution of some of that uh, that helps survivors that you can see it, it bill by bill and law by law, the things that you have supported and carried you can obviously tell that you're looking at a problem, you're, you're trying to fix this problem, and then you're like, well, now I see this other problem, so next right. year let's do this, and I think that's awesome. And I think when you look at it, the start of that in terms of sexual assault survivors is with Jenny's law in 2015, is right. that what you say? Yeah, I, um, and so I knew Jenny as a, as, a, as a friend of her family. I knew her as a, a kind of a 10 or 12-year-old little girl 
uh, was the last time I'd seen her. And when her situation came to light, she came to meet with me. And I think I met with prosecuting attorneys council, which you uh, worked with and the uh, sexual assault group. We really tried to review her case and go through to see if there was a potential of um, she may have saved a piece of uh, clothing that might have evidence on it or, or any of those things. And as it turned out, there really wasn't anything in that case except for there had been a confession after the statute of limitations had told. And so I decided to try to look at this in a way. I filed two bills that session, one of which would have totally eliminated the statute of limitations. And then I was getting pushback on that idea. And so I decided to try to be a little bit more creative. And as I, as I started to think about it, it doesn't matter if you tried to extend it from five years to seven years or seven years to 10 mm-hmm. or, or up to 15 or 20 years, you always come up with a situation that's outside of that particular window. And so I came up with this unique idea that if there is a discovery of DNA, if there's a confession, or if there's some type of recording that's sufficient to charge that person, then that would trigger a new opportunity for the prosecutor, uh, just like the crime had just occurred. And the reality is that method is being copied kind of across the country. We're seeing, I'm getting contact from legislators in other states that are saying, you know, first of all, this is a really unique way to look at it. But secondly, for a prosecutor, when you have accusations that come forward years after the fact, it's really a difficult situation to try to prove those cases. With this method, you have tangible pieces of evidence that really help a prosecutor make a determination they can go forward with that case. I know of multiple cases that have been solved with DNA that are 30 years plus after the fact. And so those are the kind of things that really give you some satisfaction because when you talk to victims, you realize that incident impacts them for really the rest of their living yeah. days. And so I, I really like that idea. We've done a couple other things. This last session, I added child sex crimes, those triggers to child sex crimes, which would have had to been initiated by age 31 uh, prior to that bill. Uh, we added some criminal deviant conduct and some other things in, in 2016, working with uh, Representative Hale in the, in the House. And so I think we've made some really good steps forward, and I'm, I'm proud of that work. Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely want to go through some of these more important, well, they're all really important, but some of the big highlights, I think, of things you've done in the past few years. And I do want to kind of go back to Jenny's Law and start there and just break it down a little bit to make sure everyone knows the history there. And so, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong but my understanding is that she had been sexually assaulted in college many years before. And we're talking 10 years later, this guy has the audacity to walk into a police station and right. say, yeah, I did it. What are you going to do about it? Right, right. And she, she had, he had been her teaching assistant at IEPUI. And so a couple of things, she, she was in the school of nursing. She thought, well, if I make a big scene, you know, it's hard to get accepted into another school of nursing. And so she just essentially said nothing. And then when the perpetrator confessed to the, the university police, uh, they tried to initiate charges because they weren't aware of the statute of limitations. The prosecutor in Marion County said, well, I'm sorry, there's really nothing that, that can be done. And so 
from Jenny's perspective, she said, I got raped a second time by the law, by the system. That was a really compelling discussion. And, and I, you know, I just decided if there's any way possible, we don't want another uh, victim to go through this, this kind of repeated trauma years after the fact. It had been actually nine years uh, between the rape and, and the confession. It's just crazy. And, you know, that's completely normal. The vast majority of victims, you know, we could talk about statistics all day long. And I talk about this pretty much every episode. So people are probably going to get annoyed with me, but it does take a lot of people, uh, sometimes a very significant period of time before they're ready to come forward. And then you've got these crazy arbitrary deadlines in place and it robs them of their day in court. And I have heard the same exact thing from multiple survivors who feel completely re-victimized all over again by the very system that's supposed to be in place to protect them and ensure justice and hold the offender accountable. So in terms of that, it is very creative what you did with that, um, those exceptions to statute of limitations. And again, just so I'm not going to get too far into the law because I think it's kind of boring for most people, but just so everyone knows the statute of limitations on that particular crime in Indiana at that time would have been five years, period. And because Senator Kreider had this situation and he really wanted to help him and other survivors, we now have three exceptions to that five years. And you mentioned it before, if there's new DNA discovered or um, the DNA scientific advancement and they now identify the perpetrator, right? right? They confess or the recording, such as the video or photos. Right. So if I'm understanding that right, that means that like, it doesn't mean if it's been, you know, six years, 10 years, 50 years after the actual assault occurs, if we've got that new evidence, then it starts a new clock. Right. A new five-year opportunity for the prosecutor. And so it's, it's as if the crime had occurred upon the discovery of that evidence. And, you know, that a lot of people say, well, why the recording? Well, unfortunately, kids or or fortunately kids today film almost everything including gang rapes in college and all these assaults and things that happen and so that that little piece is is really important and will probably be increasingly used Mm -hmm. as as we go uh, years forward but the advancement in dna is incredible what we've seen in the last several years and one of the other things I worked on was the collection of DNA upon a felony arrest, mm-hmm. which has increased the potential pool of, of applicants um, that, or, or of persons that potentially might match. Uh, they may have done a, a crime totally unconnected with a, a sex crime, but now their DNA is reintroduced into the system, and you'll see these matches occur. That whole discussion is really what started me thinking more about uh, sexual assault kits and what's happening with those kits. And so uh, you're right, it is a, it's kind of like taking a complex problem and breaking it down into manageable pieces and trying to figure out what's the next logical step. And I think if you look at what we've done here in the state, we've kind of followed that path. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that you mentioned that law. For people who don't know, prior to the enactment of this law, a person's DNA did not go into that national database until they were actually convicted. But now upon arrest, which is really helpful in a lot of these cases where 
you have maybe somebody who isn't ready to come forward yet or not, or maybe the, that case is falling apart for a multitude of reasons. We talk at length all the time about how difficult these cases are to prosecute in the first place, even if you have everything that you could wish to have as far as evidence goes. So now that's, that DNA is still going to go in the system, and I don't have the paper or the statistic in front of me, but I know that we have identified dozens of serial perpetrators of sexual assault based solely on that legislation alone. Right. And you know, if you're a criminal who is perhaps charged with multiple offenses and you know, you know, look, I can't plead guilty to this sexual assault charge because, because of this, you know, you're going to, you're going to lawyer up and you're going to figure out a way to, oh, yeah. to plead to some other Mm -hmm. um, situation. And so, I mean, it's not like these guys are just some dumb guy that fell off the last wagon. You know, they, they're career criminals in a lot of mm -hmm. cases. And, and if you don't, the, the kind of staggering thing for me is if you don't stop them, they're repeat offenders and they're going to keep committing these crimes. And so the earliest we can get an intervention in their career of crimes the less victims you have downstream, I think. So that's the thing that kind of, you know, when I'm, when I'm thinking about this thing, I, I really try to focus on how do we stop as many people as possible and how do we identify these folks as early in their career of crime as we possibly can. So, so important and so true because as anyone who's worked in the system knows, that when these perpetrators don't get caught, they become emboldened and oftentimes it escalates until perhaps right. they do make a mistake. I had one case where he was absolutely a serial rapist and he was a, what we would call a stranger rapist, meaning that he was attacking women who were alone in vulnerable uh, places at night. And I had two of them. And fortunately, because he had a prior felony arrest, his, his DNA was in the system. And only because of that were we able to catch him. They never, they couldn't tell you what he looks like, but they never right. would have him. Right. And so it's only because, and he was, he was literally a woman's walking nightmare. And I really do attribute it greatly to that law so that he was even in the system for us to be able to get it done. That was awesome for us. And then in terms of the criminal statute of limitations reform, that's kind of still ongoing, right? That's a national right. movement. I know that the organization Rain was here in the last legislative session, right. I believe. You're still trying to do some stuff on that. Yeah, I did. I worked with them on the SLL related to child sex crimes. Again, you know, it's if I had my preference, I would totally eliminate the statute of limitations. Mm -hmm. But that's a really difficult thing to explain and get through a committee, particularly when you have committee members who may be defense attorneys, you know, on their, on their real job. And so if we can get as many crimes covered under Jenny's law aspects, I think, you know, the reality is you're, you're going to get more convictions and more justice done with those triggers in place than you might otherwise where it's a, he said, she said, and a lot of the witnesses are gone kind of scenario. So I know the prosecutors that I deal with, that I talk to, really want to take as many of these cases as they can to trial, but they certainly feel a lot better if they have a tangible piece of evidence when they're getting up to present their case and, and they have much greater success. Typically, you know, if you've got a perpetrator who's got, you've got solid DNA match against them, you're going to be more in a discussion of how many years you're going to get as opposed to, you know, are you even going to win this case in front of a jury? So it's all good 
good stuff. We're making progress. That's right. And it, that's so true. I mean, I've tried lots of these cases and they're extremely difficult cases right. uh, in the first place for a multitude of reasons. People don't really understand sexual assault. They don't understand the effects that it has on people, right. both kind of in that moment and then often down the road either. And I always would say to people, you know, they don't make an instruction manual on this is how I should behave if I was ready. But for some reason, as soon as jurors sit in that box, it seems like they're automatically judging what she did or he right. was a male victim. And it's like, well, what? So anything that we yeah. have that can corroborate what the survivor is telling us happened is always going to be super, super sure. helpful. Yeah. And I think Jenny's law is amazing because it, it completely changed the game on some of that. But like we said, that burden of proof is, is really heavy and it's, it's, it's hard sometimes to make when, you know, they report it immediately and we have other things to support that, that tangible evidence. And so then, you know, the farther back in time it gets is makes it even more difficult, but this is certainly something that has been a game changer and just tangentially related to it. This is my soapbox. So I'm not going to go on to it forever, but we have an issue with the civil statute of limitations as well. It's even worse than the criminal one. It's two years on rape case and the 25th birthday for child molest victim. And it's like, We've talked and talked and talked about for all these different reasons, people don't come forward quickly all the time. And even if they did, they don't always understand, they don't connect the harm to those long-term subsequent issues. And by the time they do, it's too late. There's nothing that we can do for them. So I can tell you from last session, the uh, Senator Freeman's bill got amended into my bill for a few weeks and oh my, the number of people that came up for air as soon as that happened. Uh, essentially, there was no opposition at all to what I was trying to do with, mm -hmm. with my original bill. But what you start to see is insurance companies who wow. have insured all of these individual groups and, and large groups, uh, churches, other mm -hmm. you know, scouting org organizations, you name it, they all came up for air. Primarily, and if you listen to them, their argument is there's no way we can, we, we have not actuarially determined liability, and so we have no resources really to pay out these claims kind mm -hmm. of thing. Seems like a, a very shallow argument <laughs> when you're talking about humans and, and victims, but, but I can tell you that those groups are pretty effective with their lobbying yeah, uh, techniques, and so it was... It was clear pretty quickly if I wanted my bill to, to move forward, which was my number one sure. goal that, that that needed to come out. You know, I, anybody that, that interacts with victims knows that there are a multitude of reasons and each one may be a little bit different, but just the person standing in life has a lot to do with whether they're willing to go through and if it's a relative who has assaulted them or if it's a, a parent maybe disrupting their entire family, that causes people to wait in order to report. And that's seems like that's just like having acid drip on your soul at some, at some level, you know, it just eats away at you. And again, I think if you're a victim and it is a family situation and you realize there might be other family members that are also being victimized or potentially being victimized by the same person, mm -hmm. then then that's an awful burden to, to bear. And so I get the civil thing and I, I haven't personally come up with a way to try to try to crack that one. I know uh, Senator Freeman wants to try again and I'm certainly willing to support him. I just think it's, it's a tough, tough discussion and, and it's going to take 
you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, people that are willing to engage with their legislators to say, this is really important and why to explain it. These conversations are really tough anyway, and having them in front of a legislative committee makes it, you know, uh, pretty uncomfortable. You've got to be like, I'm pretty straightforward. If you hear me testify, I think that's the way we should be about it. It's, it's a crime that's committed against another person and the victim has no reason to have any uh, shame at all about this. It's so, I just always like talking to you because you get it and it's just so refreshing and it's nice that you understand and because so many people don't and you have a platform and you're making change for survivors and I definitely couldn't thank you enough. And to point out, uh, emphasize a point that you just made, engaging with the legislators, so important. And it actually, I think a lot of people think, well, it's not gonna make a difference. Yeah, it does. It really does. Call, write a letter, whatever. And I think I've mentioned it in one of my other episodes. We started a new group called the Legislative Reform for Indiana Survivors or LRIS. And anybody who's listening wants to get involved in that, just shoot me an email because I can get you in touch with the right people who can get you in touch with whomever your legislator is so that we can try to continue to have, you know, Senator Freeman and Senator Kreider who are bringing all these bills and getting some support from some of the other legislators because at the end of the day, it's imperative. Like it's not, it's never, we're never going to make any change if we don't have some support from some of the other people. Yeah. You have to, in the Senate, you have to have 26 votes and in the house, you have to have at least 51. These are the kind of issues that most people don't intuitively know about um, unless they have somebody that's, that's contacted them, a constituent. And so I, I can tell you that I spent 30 years in law enforcement. I was a DNR officer. I didn't, other than a, a few crimes that occurred on properties where I was an investigator, maybe at a sexual assault at a state park or something. I had very little involvement with this discussion, but I can tell you in the last several years, I have learned so much and I have been involved in countless conversations, both locally and at the national level with folks and the, and the story's the same. It doesn't matter where you go. It's, it's how do we figure out ways to give more opportunities for justice to the people who are victims? Well, you know, you say that and like, I think some people are like, oh, you know, the politicians, they say whatever, but you've got your legislative history to back it up. Like you definitely put your money where your mouth is. And just like we were talking about before, it started with Jenny's Law and then kind of you went into that sexual assault kit tracking system. And I think that what happened is when you were, you know, hearing about more of these cases with the crimes that had happened a long time ago and you're seeing, okay, we've got this, what they call the rape kit backlog around the country. It's time to do something about that too. And so in 2017, you got it passed so that the state police had to do an audit of all those untested kits around the state, which ultimately led to the development and implementation of that tracking system, right? Right. And so I heard numbers, you know, as I talked to these advocacy groups, I heard numbers, you know, 15,000, 20,000 unprocessed kits and things. And so I, again, just, I'm a basic thinker about these things. Give me a one day snapshot in Indiana. What, what is the number? And so I did that resolution. I talked to the state police before and I told them, I said, look, this isn't an attack on anybody. I just want to know what does it look like? And had great cooperation. You know, the, your organization at the time, the prosecuting attorneys council got involved and really the local prosecutors across the state really kind of led that effort. We got the number back. It wasn't as high as most people have said, but you know, you 
when you're involved in this discussion, you realize each one of those represents a horrible incident in somebody's life. And so the fact that they did not move or were not processed, to me became, that's the next problem I wanted to solve. And I wanted to give the victims opportunity to have some ownership, to have some ability to know where his or her individual kit might be in that process, in that whole discussion. And so that's kind of the parameters I laid out working with the Indiana Criminal Justice Institute and other folks. A lot of people may not realize, but there's already the Sexual Assault Victims Assistance Fund that pays for the processing. And I'd worked on bills related to that. And so I knew that. And I knew there was, there was already a mechanism. Could we expand that mechanism that we use to pay the individual healthcare facilities that collected the kits? And so we had those discussions and we came up with a, with a tracking system that works. We can give the victim an identifier uh, so that they can go into the system and see where their individual kit might be, whether it's at the prosecutor or that's been submitted to the to the lab and when they might expect it back from the lab to the prosecutor so they can initiate a trial. And so, again, that's a kind of a multi-year step, but Indiana now is in a better place than uh, many of the states around. And we've, we've got a program that's going to obviously help victims understand, you know, a lot of the when you talk to the, because I'm friends with the law enforcement side also from my background, you know, a lot of times the, the, there's a lot of assaults in college towns and the mm-hmm. victims are so victimized, they just go home and they may live in another state. Okay. And so keeping that contact and, and keeping things, you can kind of see how things might break down if there weren't this opportunity for the victim to kind of stay in contact with that process. And so, uh, you know, I've been telling folks, you know, if, you, if you're in this realm and you have a kit that's in the system, it's kind of incumbent upon you to keep asking questions. What, what's happening with my kit? Mm-hmm. Talk to those detectives. They've got a lot of other cases on their, on their plate at the same time. Make sure that at the end of the day, we will for the first time know how many kits enter the system on an annual basis, kind of what the disposition of those kits were, And that'll help us kind of understand as we go forward, if there continue to be problems, how to address those problems. Yeah, it's really kind of an exciting time, you know, seeing this now finally become implemented. And I will tell you that working on this initiative with you and with the Criminal Justice Institute and the state police is definitely one of the proudest I've been of anything that I've had a part of in my career because it is so important for a multitude of reasons. But now we always talk about the victims or survivors, they've had the power taken away from them. And this is just part of restoring that power to them because they were like, where is it? I don't even know. I mean, has it been tested? Has it not been tested? And now they can log right on and see. And, you know, just so people know, we did try to keep the system as simple as possible. We didn't want to end up having any tangential evidentiary issues arise because of this. And I think that that was certainly the right choice to make and so we're just now getting into it and it does it's it's important for the victims and I think it's also a little bit of checks and balances with everybody else in the system because just like you said now if I'm the prosecutor I can log on and say okay that kit was entered on this date but I haven't heard anything about it so maybe it's time for me to follow up and see what we need to do here yeah I know from my from my law enforcement background in my agency when we went computerized there was a kind of a review process for the the corporals and the su- immediate supervisors of, uh, above the 
field investigator for them to get, the, you know, what's happening with this case that was initiated a month ago and to start that conversation back and forth. When you get this ability to track what's happening, that's when you get real accountability in the system. Absolutely. And I, you know, I don't know if I can too often say this, but Indiana has actually, because of you and this legislation, has been a leader in this area. And I know the other states are looking to Indiana and they're like, okay, right. they've already done it. I don't want to reinvent the wheel here. So what did you guys do? Because, you know, anytime you're doing stuff like this, right. it doesn't go perfectly. Like we experienced setbacks. We saw things, oh, we should have done that better here. But, you know, at the end of the day, the good, the bad, the ugly, it's in place. And it is definitely a service to victims for sure. Sure. Okay, so looking to the future, what are you thinking? Do you have any vision or anything that you see coming down the pipeline as it relates to survivors of sexual assault? The thing that I've been working on the most recently is around sex trafficking. Mm. Our current statute in the state uh, makes trafficking a level five felony. And if you're in the, the court realm, if you've been involved in, in cases, you know it's way more often that cases get pled down to a lower level felony than they go up and when they become a level six felony there's usually no jail time and there's it's a, a fine a monetary yep. um, situation well people that traffic individuals don't have an issue with money and so i'm i'm trying to escalate the uh, if if an individual that's trafficked is under the, the age of 18 i want it to be at least a level four felony Mm -hmm. And so we discussed that in a recent interim study committee. I'm going to file that bill again this, this awesome. next session, trying to, to get that done. I've been working with RAIN again. Uh, we're trying to figure out a way to incentivize, uh, first of all, give law enforcement officers more training about sexual assault, the victimization, uh, but also incentivize healthcare facilities to have more sane nurses within their system. You know, again, you know, if you're, if you're part of the prosecution uh, situation, you know, there's a lot of ways that a defense attorney can get cases thrown out if evidence isn't properly collected, if there's not a good chain of custody, all those things. But, you know, with, with the DNA situation, it's so critical. We want to make sure we get as many samples as we possibly can collected so that potential of getting good, solid DNA marker for that bad guy or, or whoever it is in the system, you know, is, is really critical. And, and the training that a sane nurse gets for those that are listening, a sexual assault nurse examiner is a sane nurse. And for the training they get, first of all, they're, they're more sensitive to the victim and they understand, you know, the trauma they've been through. And that's a desirable thing in this situation. In the hospital that I used to work at, is very often that they would refer somebody to another healthcare facility 20 miles away to have the, the kit collected. And you just know intuitively once that person gets in their car, the doubts start creeping in and it's like, you know, is this worth it? This is already becoming a hassle. So if we can get a process in place that gets us where we have more of those nurses, the, the challenge becomes there's not enough business in that area to have a dedicated person in the in the hospital there has to be somebody that's willing to kind of be on call and come in and so you understand the the kind of nuances 
I just, I'm not sure that most people understand why it's so important. Oh, totally true. Well, I didn't know that you were doing either of those things, so I'm obviously really excited to hear that. Uh, when I was a Marion County prosecutor, I was I did all of the human trafficking cases in Indiana for two years, or excuse me, in Indianapolis for two years. So I was in charge of all that. And um, then, you know, when I was at IPAC, I was training law enforcement and prosecutors around the state. And our laws, you know, I don't think a lot of people know this, but we didn't even have human trafficking laws on the books right. in 2007 because we had the Super Bowl coming, and they were like, oh gosh. And so right, they got yeah. something pushed through, which is really important, but the language is pretty convoluted and it had like labor and sex trafficking all mixed together, which was an issue, obviously. So we got that change. I think it's 2018, maybe when that changed. But if you look at the penalties now and you compare them to the rest of the country, it's abysmal. It's embarrassing how right. low the penalties are in Indiana. So the fact that you're working on that is extremely just, I, I can't wait. And because I think, again, it, so much of this is a lack of awareness. A lot of people are like human trafficking. It's like, that doesn't happen here. And the thing is, it does. Yeah. It happens in rural areas too. It just doesn't really look the way that people think it's going to look. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think another, you know, just to give you an idea of another bill that I'm going to help Senator Ford with from the Terre Haute area, we were approached, I do a lot of work in mental health also. And we were approached by a group that wanted something to incentivize schools to put the suicide lifeline phone number on their ID badges for the students so that they're, they always had something if they were in crisis or they knew somebody else was in crisis. I said, okay, I'll, I'll help support that. But also I would like to see the human trafficking hotline also put on those ID badges so that mm -hmm. students who know, you know, unfortunately, when you start in this discussion, you realize that, that these traffickers are using students and young adults to help recruit uh -huh. uh, folks into that, that lifestyle. And so I'm just constantly trying to think of things. Okay, if somebody has an idea, okay, what, what can we do to leverage that idea to get more awareness and to get more young folks who, who may see what's happening, you know, who have the ability right then to call somebody and maybe uh, intervene in that situation. I've always said information is power and the more information we can get out about these folks the, in the human realm, when you talk about mental health and addiction and things, to the extent we can take the stigma away, you know, we, we get ourselves in a better situation uh, downstream. And, you know, when you talk to victims, of sexual assault to me i if there's anybody that has a legitimate reason to self-medicate it's folks like that and we've just got to continue to fight and do better and that i, I guess i'm kind of become a social justice warrior at some level <laughs> you know because i'm i'm trying to figure out ways to help people just live a better life to the extent that we can as government and government doesn't do much very well, but you know I, I think we're we're seeing increasing awareness around around these discussions, and and that's encouraging to me. And honestly, to the extent I've kind of become the point of contact for Indiana mm -hmm. in these discussions, I'm really really proud of the work that we've done the last several years. I mean, I think we've made huge steps forward. So. For as long as I get the chance to call myself a, a state senator, I'm going to be in here swinging away and trying to help. Well, I certainly appreciate all that you've done, and you do have a lot to be proud of. I appreciate that you are 
you know, making those connections. There is that interconnectedness between sexual assault and addiction issues and mental health issues. And I think that you have illustrated too, with everything that you've done, the real importance of the multidisciplinary effort and how important each of these cogs in the wheel is the sexual assault kits, starts at the nurses, goes to the crime lab, keeping track of those, the officers, the prosecutors, increased training for everybody and trying to combat some of that lack of awareness, both within the professionals who are working on these types of cases, but also just the community at large. So I think that that is super admirable and I know that we're thankful for it. Anything else that you wanna talk about that you think is important before we sign off here today? I'm grateful for folks like yourself and the other groups that advocate on behalf of these folks. I'm in the middle of a political campaign right now and, and uh, people are talking about, you know, why things are important or not important. And often it's about folks want to say, well, somebody donated to your campaign and, and they own you or you, you have some responsibility to them now. And I, and I told a group the other day, I challenge you to look at what I do and what I've done because these folks don't have anybody really advocating on their behalf. Um, Somebody has to take up their fight and fight for them. And they have to do it because they, they want to do that. It's not the thing that's going to get you most of the headlines and, and things, but I have fought for the last six years, I think trying to get more resources for the internet crimes against children uh, task force. We're in a real financial struggle this year as a state. And, and, you know, I'm in a kind of a quandary as to what to do about that because I don't want that conversation to go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm really blessed. I'm appointed to all the right committees. I'm a member of appropriations. I'm on the health committee. I'm not part of the committees that typically have the legislation I work on in this realm uh, the most, but I, but I think I've developed a reputation amongst my colleagues that they know when I bring an issue to them, I'm serious about it. And then I would say that I never stand alone in those rooms. There are always a bunch of groups lined up behind me saying, yeah, this is a good idea. Do this. And so for that, you know, I, I'm grateful. I love the work and the opportunity to advocate on behalf of other people. That's the only reason I'm there and doing this because I could be retired and playing golf, (laughs) you know, a lot more than I do. But there is such a sense of satisfaction when you get a phone call, like I got recently from the prosecutor in Shelby County, who had a, a guy that they collected DNA on. They had been looking at him for a number of years, and they finally got a match. And there was a series of four or five victims that were 30 years old plus and when you get that kind of phone call and you realize that when those victims got a phone call hey the bad guy we just got him that has to be so such a sense of relief for them because I don't think they ever stop looking over their shoulder after they've had one incident. And so you can see it in their faces. I'm, I'm a trained law enforcement investigator. They're sitting right there and you can see their face tighten up and their lips start to quiver and the tears start and you know how significant that incident was in their life. And so, you know, we're, we're going to keep fighting and groups like you, you know, other people are going to be there with us and we're going to keep 
getting good things done. I'm confident of that. I completely agree. And having had the privilege to work on several of these efforts with you over the past few years, I can attest to the fact that you are a man of your word and you always follow through and you have been really a godsend for people who have been through this in terms of uh, forwarding legislation that's going to actually protect them. Senator Kreider, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to be here. It's so inspirational to see you recognizing these issues that survivors face and actually doing something about it. And not just Jenny's Law, you've continued to recognize that there are more problems and you have continued to be an agent of change. And I certainly couldn't be more thankful for that. I look forward to seeing you continue to make that positive change. And I hope I get to work with you more in the future. And thank you to our listeners. Please continue to tune in and share this podcast with others. Please submit any questions or requests for guests at supportforsurvivors.com. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.